Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. So, Paul, we've got a very interesting show. At the moment, I, I, I must admit, I'm becoming a little bit worried about house prices, purely because I'm reading all the stories in the Fairfax Press and, and watching the ABC, who are always telling me that house prices are really going to fall. We're going to talk to a person whose business is about uh, advising people on buying property, and a porter. Uh, she, she's become on the show. Her, pro, her business is called Suburbanite. We'll then be talking to Russell Pillimer from Pengana. He's the CEO there. And we're going to talk about investing in private equity, Paul. A lot of people just don't understand what that is, do they? They don't, and it's certainly a huge growth area because uh, more and more businesses are actually purchased by private equity, and it's become a really uh, key sort of place or way that Obviously, you know, particularly in the tech economy, that new businesses start. It comes mm. from private equity as opposed to the traditional fund managers or banks. So, look, uh, yeah, look, uh, and it's a, it, in itself, it's an asset class to invest in. So, mm. this is one way to do it. And what's really interesting, Paul, is that a lot of private equity have actually bought up struggling businesses like um, um, what was the, um, the hi fi business that um, Dick Smith mm-hmm. and resuscitated it. Listen to the stock market, made a lot of money, and then the company went nowhere after they pulled out. Well, it was a bit of a dirty word because often private equity was associated with sort of, as you say, Peter, buying a business, sort of almost, uh, I won't say cooking up the books, but making it look pretty good <laughs> and then selling it off at a high price and then yeah. the business was through some pretty tough times. Yep, in fact, yep. uh, one might say that the Meyer float was a bit of an example. Exactly. Uh, there are a lot of cases. Isn't it? There, are, there have been some cases in that, but I think these <laughs> days private equity has matured. And it's more and more involved in new businesses, particularly uh, in the tech field, and that's where I think the opportunity is. If you look at any of the big tech names that have come out of the US, they've all had private equity as very, very early and key shareholders, and uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's why it's something to look at. Yeah, and this Pingana Fund has access to a lot of those American private equity uh, groups, so we'll talk about that. And then we have Jack Watts from the Bastion Collective, and this is basically a company that's putting together a whole lot of advisory and advertising firms. Very interesting story. That's the show for the day. So without any further ado, let's go catch up with Anna Porter from Suburbanite. Anna, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. You're welcome. Now, I've got you on because, you know, every time I open up a newspaper nowadays, I'm, my pants are being scared mm. off me because of all the headlines around house prices falling and whatever. And the name of your business is Suburbanite. So I reckon you know a little thing or two about real estate. So before you give us your take on what's happening to house prices, explain Suburbanite. Yes. Yeah, so. Suburbanite, uh, we specialise in property investment and advisory services. So our team are all qualified valuers in our past lives. We've got a degree in land, land economics. And we use that skill set to help investors make really good buying decisions. Given the fact that your business is a business designed to help people work out the, the right value of a property they're buying, what's your view on where house prices are going in Sydney and Melbourne? Yeah, so this is a question we get asked all the time. 
the market is turning a corner for Sydney and Melbourne, you know, but it is off the back of, you know, 80-odd percent growth in a lot of the suburbs throughout those markets. So what we see in any market cycle is we see this really quick growth come through over three or four years. When we hit the peak, there's a small correction that comes in and the market will sit flat for another five or six years while all the other economic drivers try to catch up, including, you know, rental returns and things like that. So the moment we're going to that correction, when we look at the historical trends, we see it around about 10% is where that correction sits as a capital city on average. So there are some suburbs that have been hit harder. There's some property sectors that have certainly been hit harder. But we do expect it to settle in around about 10%. And then it's just going to sit flat for a while while everything else catches up. So, Anna, have we already got to the 10% or there's a bit more... Um, is the market in aggregate need to go down a bit further first before it sort of then sits and, and meanders around for some years by the sounds of your scenario? It, yeah, look, it will be years. But Melbourne certainly has a little bit more pain to push through. It's only mm-hmm. just starting to go through its correction. Sydney, we've seen a fair bit of Sydney hit that sort of bottom end, I think. We've maybe got another six months of a little bit of pain for Sydney to push through. But we are already seeing some areas starting to stabilise a little bit as well, where a little bit more buyer buoyancy coming back in. The days on market aren't, you know, too long. That's nothing too concerning. And, you know, really good quality property is still transacting. It's the stuff that has maybe, you know, compromises, I suppose you'd call it, the, the main roads or the properties that are too small or the land's too small or they're in oversupplied unit sectors and things like that, they're the ones that are still getting hit a bit harder, but they always get hit a bit harder in a, in a market downturn. So the good properties are, are really starting to settle into where they're at now and, and the ones that they're a little bit of um, a little bit of compromise around for the buyers, well, they're going to see a little bit more pain for a little bit longer. Yeah, I wrote a story last week on Switzer Daily where I said, well, yeah, it seems to me that the, the kind of starting points needed for a bottom to be formed are starting to show up with clearance rates a little bit better. Some anecdotal stories of, I know a colleague of mine went to an auction at Castle Hill. He was staggered by how many people turned up. There was lots of bidding and it went $400,000 over the reserve. These are the kinds of things that you wouldn't expect in a market that's suffering the kind of headlines we've been seeing in newspapers. And are you starting to see signs that a bottom is starting to form? We sure are. We sure are starting to see that. And it's also, we've got to remember, we're coming off the back of a pretty unprecedented lending environment where we had the Royal Commission into banking. There's been, you know, a lot of um, APRA restrictions sitting behind that around the same sort of timing with lending. So it's been a really hard environment for people to play in if they're trying to borrow money to purchase property. And remembering money requires, sorry, not money, uh, property requires a lot of leveraging. It requires a lot of money to get into the market in these two hubs, being Sydney and Melbourne. We're not talking a $400,000 purchase in many cases. We're talking a million plus as the median price of a lot of these these properties. Um, you know, So we are starting to see that free up in itself, which is then in turn helping that environment in the market to settle down. But it is starting to come back a bit. We are There are sectors that always get hit differently in terms of first home buyers. They're always going to be the, the, the sector of the market that are going to have issues with affordability. So when we've been through the type of growth we've been through, it does take that sort of first home buyer entry level price point longer to recover. And that real top end prestige market also gets a bit hit harder because we've got a smaller buyer pool. But that middle of the road stuff, we are certainly starting to see agents selling properties for prices that, you know, we've seen them selling them for in, in years gone by, not too much of a differential and selling them in, you know, 30 days, 60 days, not 
five or six months. So they're all really good signs. And Anna, tell me about investors. You mentioned before about the restriction on lending that was uh, had come from the regulator, APRA, and they've, they've eased up on that. And I guess the banks are perhaps just starting to ease up as well. But the other factor that investors potentially need to address is a change of government and maybe potentially changes to negative gearing. Are we seeing investors back in the market or are they still just a bit sort of hanging back and do you think we're really waiting to uh, see how the market plays out? We are seeing a little bit more urgency coming in with investors now. So we've had this you know, perfect storm, I suppose you could call it, where there has been the lending environment loosen up a little bit at the same time that property policy hit the election trail. So that has you know, stepped a few investors through that process maybe a bit quicker than what they would have otherwise gone through had we been in this part of last year. But having said that as well, it's interesting. We talk about this negative gearing potential changes and this negative gearing reform that might come through. Most of our investors that we speak with aren't investing for negative gearing or tax purposes. That's like the icing on the cake. Fundamentally, they're investing because they want to build wealth for their future. They want to get their money working for them. They want to set up the family and the kids. And all those things are still in play. We've only got about 26% of the Australian market are investors. So there's a huge amount of the market are home buyers, and they're not going to change their decisions this side or the other side of the election. So the majority won't force the market to move too significantly, whichever government gets into power. What are rents like in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment? Weak. Mm. <laughs> in one third, they're weak. Mm. So you know, oh. the rental market and the property market generally have a lot of correlations. So what's happened is the growth has gone through really quickly and the rents can't keep pace with that. So therefore, you've got a very um, big difference in, in those price points and the, the differential creates a very soft yield. So, you know, we're seeing yields in Sydney and Melbourne metro sitting typically between about 25 and 3.5%, which by any measure isn't a fantastic return. Then on top of that, we're also seeing the markets weakening in terms of level of demand. So... 12 months ago, you go to rent a property and you'd be on the waiting list. You'd have all sorts of trouble getting it. You'd be offering three to six months rent up front just to get your foot in the door. Now that's not so much the case. And that is that softening of that rental market. Whereas you go to Canberra, for example, you know, we hear agents telling us all the time that people will see, renters will see a sold sign on a property. They'll bring the agent to ask if it's going to be rented out because there's such a shortage of stock that the demand is through the roof. So very different marketplaces and, and very different drivers and time in the cycle. Okay, Anna, tell us the places that you think the areas that really look good for investors right now. Yeah, so, look, I love this question because there's so much, um, there's so many different opinions around it and, and so much behind it that it's, it depends a little bit on the strategy and I'm just going to qualify that first. People say to me, including my taxi driver and my Uber driver, surely you should be buying in Sydney or Melbourne now because prices are at rock bottom. You know, that's the, the old anecdote we hear about, you know, buy when the stock market's low type thing. Mm. The challenge there is what I mentioned before about that cyclical thing. We, we could see it go back a little bit more before it completely stabilises. And again, it depends what property type and where you're buying it. And then it's going to sit flat for a long time. So if you're an investor that's happy to say, look, I don't want to return for five or six years, you're crazy. But that's the reality of that sort of buying philosophy. For us, the really, the really good way to invest and the more strategic way to invest is to be always looking to get a property that's going up that growth elevator. So looking at the markets that have got the key drivers and the timing right in the cycle. And there's a lot of things that, that put that into play. But some of the big things is job creation and infrastructure and population growth. 
So building a road, building a bridge on its own isn't good enough. It doesn't create jobs. But when you turn to places like Adelaide, for example, there's an affordability factor there. So you can buy properties, freestanding houses within half hour of the city for, you know, as little as the 400. There is affordability, major infrastructure. You've got the, the hospital project that's just been built at $2.4 billion. Now, that makes it the most expensive single building in Australia and number seven in the world at the moment. The job creation off the back of that is going to be huge, as well as the submarines, frigate fleets, corvettes, which are military boat projects and a number of other major projects that are going to create thousands and thousands of jobs into Adelaide over the next few years. Those things in terms of the timing and the cycle coupled with those other key drivers and the rental market is very strong there at the moment makes it a really good opportunity for investors. And we also want to turn our attention to Canberra if you're an investor. So Canberra is at the moment pre-election. So the market tends to go on a bit of pause of a pause button prior to the election. There's not a lot of buying and selling happening because people don't know if they're going to be in a job. But as soon as the election's over, the market goes back to where it was. And at the moment, that is in the grips of a growth stage. So really low rental um, vacancy, really high rental demand, really strong rental returns. And you've got a market that is a really good buying opportunity because it's pre-election that will power through once the election's done and dusted. So again, another really good buying opportunity for investor looking for growth in the near future. Okay. There's one last question, Anna. People have been saying for a few years that Brisbane you know, is, is getting close to a situation where prices should start to rise. Are you in that, that camp? Yes, yeah, so we are seeing a bit of that coming out of Brisbane. Brisbane is what we've you know, coined the slow and steady wins the race type market. So it has got some big projects coming online soon. So we've got the Hurston Quarter, which is a big lifestyle precinct. And then we've also got the Queen's Wharf project. So these are two major projects into the billions, but there are still a few years off coming out of the ground. So I think it's still going to be a little bit of a two to three year outlook to see the growth coming through. But we are already starting to see some suburbs that are performing. When I say performing, we want to get, you know, suburbs within half hour of the city, not in a flood zone, that you're getting a freestanding house. The unit market is oversupplied and it is hurtling backwards. Getting too far out of the city in Brisbane is a different market altogether. It gets quite regional and lacks employment very quickly. But in that city area, I think over the next two to three years, we're going to see some good news coming out of Brisbane. Okay, just name us one hot suburb then that we can always say, Anna Porter tipped us into that. <laughs> one hot suburb. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I would – well, I just bought myself in a suburb, so I suppose I should share my yeah. own personal one. I think that would be only fair in a suburb down in Adelaide called Woodcroft. So it's about 25 minutes south of the city. I bought a property for only about 370000 It's a sort of house that's been updated in the 90s, but original 60s. It probably needs another little bit of an update. Mm. Uh, we're getting a really good rental return. Had tenants in within, you know, a couple of days of settlement. And it's a real sort of working class area, but it is still within a stone's throw of the capital city. It's got all the right employment, schools, drivers that you need to have. And, you know, there's no reason this suburb won't do well off the back of all that's coming through Adelaide, and it's incredibly affordable. Great stuff. So, and uh, if people want to know more, I presume the website is? Suburbanite.com.au. Thanks for joining us on the program. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's Anna Porter from Suburbanite. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Russell Pillimer, the CEO of Pengana, about investing in private equity. Well, you could say that 2019 so far has been politically challenging, and you must be wondering how this political roller coaster will affect your financial future. Our Switzer Investment Strategy Day is back in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane to cover all these topics and more. Tickets are only $39 and are on sale right now. For more details, head to 
www.switzerevents.com.au. One thing a small investor can't easily do is invest in private equity because private equity firms are often made up of very rich people who put all their money together and they go hunting around the world for great companies to, to buy, to build up, to then list and make a lot of money out of. Well, uh, the group called Pengana have actually created a, a, a new product for small investors to actually invest in private equity. The, the uh, name of the investment, which is listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, is the Pengana Private Equity Trust. And I'm talking to the CEO, Russell Pilmer, Pilmer from Pengana. Thanks for joining us on the program, Russell. Thank you, Peter. So, Russell, a lot of people are curious about your Pengana Private Equity Trust. So, in a nutshell, explain what it is. So, Peter, this is an opportunity for Australian investors to invest in a portfolio of global private equity opportunities. So, a private equity um, is a very big market around the world. Um, uh, this is really driven by the fact that um, a lot of companies uh, in the offshore markets um, have gone private or do not uh, go public. I'm talking about companies around about a billion dollars of size. And so the private markets are a big market. And we're giving investors this opportunity to invest in these private companies. Um, uh, and this is the very first time this will be done through an ASX-listed vehicle. Now, now, I think we should explain to people that, you're, as you've implied, there are sensationally big companies around the world that aren't listed on the stock exchange. And I remember I was staggered to learn that Hyatt is owned by the, is it the Pritzler family or something. It's just like a family owns Hyatt. Yes. So the, the end of the market that we're particularly interested in is the one or $2 billion companies uh, around those sizes. Now, in Australia, um, uh, in the US markets, for instance, it doesn't make sense for a company of that size to be listed. It's too costly. It's too time-consuming. You have to do quarterly reporting, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, companies um, of that size usually don't go to the market. Now, you can see this in a, in a really interesting statistic, and that is this, that in the year 2000, there were about 9,000 listed companies in the U.S. market. Today, there are only 4,000 listed companies. So the number of listed companies has actually halved over that period. And these you know, decent-sized companies, and in Australia would be considered mid-caps, are actually totally out of the listed equity markets. And um, the opportunity arises because these companies, whilst they're not listed, they still have demands for capital. They still want to grow. Some of their shareholders still want to exit. Uh, the stock, etc. And so the private equity firms have stepped into this void and have started providing capital over the last couple of decades to these types of businesses. And this has been a very lucrative opportunity uh, for private equity firms. And Russell, your trust invests in, uh, in several of these companies, but maybe you could just give us an example of a couple of uh, companies that you know, that you might invest in? I, mean, I think it's just uh, putting names or type of business uh, to help, uh, often helps uh, potential investors just understand this asset class. Uh, sure. So, so what we uh, specifically do is try and invest, or our partners at Grosvenor Capital, which is a very large investor in, um, in the pr global private equity world. So Grosvenor specific, and they'll be the uh, investment manager responsible for picking and investing in these various private equity funds. What Grosvenor does 
um, is oh, the Gravener's area of expertise is on the um, medium-sized private equity firms. So private equity firms that raise anywhere from half a billion dollars to a billion to two billion dollars um, uh, per fund, and they're typically investing in companies of about a billion dollars um, of size. Um, so um, they're usually the funds that they invest in are industry uh, specialists. Um, and so they focus uh, on particular industry segments. And that could be anywhere from, um, you know, retail businesses uh, to um, uh, something as esoteric um, as a private equity fund that strictly invests um, in aerospace uh, industry. We've, we've got one of those uh, that we've got lined up for the portfolio. So um, uh, the industry-specific funds uh, we find are better uh, because uh, they've got an expertise in a specific market and they've got the right contacts, etc. And so people who are looking for um, uh, for equity uh, in these types of in, in for these types of businesses will naturally be attracted uh, to the specialists in that area. Um, it's also uh, particularly lucrative because uh, unlike public markets, it's not a matter of the person who pays the highest price gets to make the investment. This is a matter of the best investor very often, even if they're not prepared to pay the highest price, uh, um, manages to, uh, to be success, successful in making the investment. So, um, so that's in general what we try and do. We give some various examples um, of the types of businesses mm -hmm. that, um, uh, that Grovener have invested in. One example we, 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 uh, we, we gave was actually um, uh, last year, uh, Grovener uh, invested in a business called Staples, and Staples is the uh, U.S. version of, uh, I guess, of Officeworks in Australia, a much larger business, obviously. But Staples actually at the time, and this is probably unusual uh, for the sorts of companies that we invest in, they were actually a publicly listed company. Uh, but Staples had been hit by uh, the Amazon phenomena, uh, whereby uh, when Amazon comes into an industry, we've all seen this, that prices get absolutely decimated, and Staples was trading very, very cheaply. So Grovener, uh, one of the funds that Grovener had uh, invested in, identified this um, as an opportunity to take Staples private. Um, Grovener in had invested with that fund manager and also did a co-investment alongside that manager to take Staples private. They took it private, um, Staples had about 2,000 uh, big boxes, um, big warehouse um, type formats around uh, the US. Um, they had to close down and restructure a whole lot of those. Uh, they had to sell off some surplus assets, some properties, a business in Canada, etc. They quickly moved to do all of this, um, creating a lot of value very quickly and increasing the profitability. And then also noticed that Staples had two types of businesses uh, uh, within their within their operations. One was the um, was the retail um, business, but the other one is a distribution business, whereby Staples. Um, have, a have a team who go out and restock stationary cabinets uh, for, um, for corporate clients. Um, they separated those businesses, provided transparency between the two, uh, ended a cross-subsidy between the two, and found that that distribution business was incredibly um, valuable. Mm -hmm. So this is the sorts of things that, um, and then at some point in time, you know, they'll probably go on to sell those two pieces, probably separately, etc. Yeah. So this is the sort of thing that you can do in a private uh, company. It's very hard to do that, as you can imagine, in a public market context, where, especially in the U.S., where investors are looking for that co next quarterly earnings 
earnings announcement and if you miss your quarterly earnings growth, then you get punished, etc. So much easier to operate in a private context and the private equity firms certainly take advantage of that. Okay, so all the money you'll pull together from Australian investors in your Pangana Private Equity Trust, that money then gets transferred to Grosvenor to actually do what it does and then you get a, re- a related return to the the benefits that f- uh, flow from their investments with that money. Yeah, c- correct, although um, that is correct. The, the only difference there, Peter, that just to clarify, um, we don't invest it with Grosvenor. Grosvenor, we collect our money into the Pengana Private Equity Trust mm. and Grosvenor advises um, our trust on where to invest that money. Okay. So it actually is, it doesn't go to Grosvenor, uh, but Grosvenor uh, tell us where to put the allocations. And then let's go to the perspective of, of an investor in the trust. What can they look forward to? So they end up with units uh, that are going to be quoted on the ASX in the Pengana Private Equity Trust. Over the long term, would they be expecting income returns or, or hopefully capital returns? What are the sort of the... Yes, so the investors land up with a, uh, a unit uh, in the trust, which is a listed uh, unit. Uh, when you look to the underlying investments, you'll see underneath that are investments in, in excess of 100 different private equity funds. Mm-hmm. And if you look a layer below that, you'll actually see that ultimately there will be investments in 600 plus uh, private, equity, private equity companies. So that's what investors are getting. We're not trying to pick the best private equity fund. We're not trying to pick the best private equity company. We're trying to give investors a broad brush exposure to a large number of top performing private equity companies. Uh, out of that, investors would, would expect to return, if history has been, been any guide for top performing private equity, uh, that investors should expect to earn some nice strong growth in the portfolio. And in addition to that, a 4% yield, which is the target return. That's 4% on the net asset value of the of the trust, and that's paid half yearly, so 2% every half year. Okay, Russell, uh, I know you were really well taught because I taught you many years ago at the University of New South Wales. Um, so is there anything you need to teach us about, uh, about the Pengana Private Equity Trust? Uh, yes, yeah, so Peter, probably just, just the, the one other thing I would add is we've got a very unique um, structure for our um, IPO, our initial public offering, and that is that when investors put a dollar into the offer and it opens up on day one, the net asset value uh, uh, per unit will not be a dollar. It will actually be five cents, 5% above that, so it'll be a dollar five. Um, so we, you, investors will immediately get a 5% increase uh, estimated increase in their net asset value uh, per unit. The way we are doing that is we are taking some shares in our publicly listed company. So Pengana Capital uh, Group is PCG is a publicly listed fund manager. We are going, going to take some equity from from PCG and we will put it into the trust. Um, the, so let, let me give that in practical terms. We're aiming at the top end of the range to raise $600 million uh, for this vehicle. If we raise $600 million, we will take uh, a 5% um, of that amount would be $30 million. We will issue 5% of equity from PCG and we will gift it uh, into the trust for only $1. And so investors will get a 5% increase on day one. This is an absolute uh, first in the marketplace. 
uh, to do this for all investors. And the reason why we're doing this is because uh, we want to reward our investors for coming into the RPO and for having faith in us and backing us. And we love the idea of our investors being aligned with us and having shares in our management company as well as in PTG. Obviously, it's a pretty big check for us to write out, a $30 million uh, check uh, done in the form of equity uh, in, this, in this case. Um, but we're happy to do that because the value that will be created for the shareholders in PCG uh, will be much larger than, a, than that. And what we're doing is effectively a taking a piece of that value increase and we are putting it into the trust for the benefits of uh, our new investors. So in the $60 trust. million dollars worth of skin in the game, eh? Uh, uh, so, sorry, it will actually, the, the skin Third in the game. Thing. It's 30 million, although yeah. we are paying the costs of the offer as well, which will be about 3%. Mm. So in, in essence, what this will, our skin in the game, uh, from the Pingana perspective, will be 8% of the monies that, that, that is raised. 5% in what we call the alignment shares that we're putting into the trust, plus 3% of the costs of the vehicle. So if we raise $60 million, we will have $48 million of skin in the game. And finally, uh, uh, Russell, when does the uh, offer open? The offer opened uh, two weeks ago, um, and uh, Sorry. it will close. <laughs> when, when does it close? I probably should say that. <laughs> the offer will close um, on the 10th of next month. Right. Great stuff. Russell, good luck with that. It sounds like a really interesting way of investing in an area where people don't have access, and it's a, a very innovative idea. Thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. Thank you very much for having me. That was Russell Pilmar, the CEO of Pengana. After the break, we'll be talking to the, uh, the interesting advertising business, collecting a whole lot of advertising business, and it's headed up by a guy by the name of Jack Watts, and the name of the company is Bastion Collective. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are my teeth? And remember, when we're talking about home loans and the headline interest rate of 3.89%, that is the headline or advertised rate, but it's exactly the same as our comparison rate. Whenever you go looking for a loan, make sure you ask not what the advertised rate is, the comparison rate to see what you actually are paying when you take out a loan. Well, the media landscape is changing and a company that's right on the forefront of this change is Bastion Collective and the CEO is Jack Watts and he joins me on the program. Welcome to the program, Jack. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Great pleasure, mate. Now, look, tell me this. Um, Bastion Collective, what's the, the, the I guess, the, the business model of Bastion Collective? So we're a really broad communications agency, Peter. So um, we work with a range of clients, a lot of them household names around their um, communications needs. So whether that be research, advertising, PR, sponsorship, video production, social and digital. And I suppose what differentiates us from most of the big and small agencies out there is we, my brother, my father and I, 
built this business over 10 years and we've got 10 parts of our business that all want small agencies that we put together to create the sort of biggest independent in the market, if that makes sense. Mm. So is this unusual? Because in the old days there were PR firms and there were advertising agencies and and you seem to be saying, well, the, the modern age business needs a complete media communications plan and therefore it just makes sense to be in all those spaces to to handle the the many facets of the way in which a business will communicate to the market that's exactly right peter i think that's really a reflection of um the changing media landscape i mean this whole industry used to be about making ads and buying media to place them and you know, that was in a time when you could reach 80% of the population by advertising on Channel 7, 9 and 10 on a Sunday night. That's changed remarkably over the last 15 years with the fragmentation of the media market. I mean, um, I bet you're the same, I'm the same, and all your listeners would be the same. You just don't go home and watch three or four hours of TV anymore. Um, so consumers aren't predictable in the way they consume media. Therefore, advertisers need to change their approach and what you need is a great idea, that same great idea, influenced by really good research, but it also needs to be executed across so many of those channels I mentioned before, like PR, sponsorship, advertising, digital content, even Chinese cultural marketing, India marketing, those sorts of things. Yeah, so I, I guess I should say my colleague, Paul Rickards, is joining me on the, the interview as well, Jack. I didn't introduce him earlier. I'm sure he'll have a question or two. But, but you're also you're picking up companies like Banjo. Now, Banjo, tell us the history of Banjo and why you thought you needed to bolt this onto your organisation. So Banjo is a 10-year-old uh, creative agency run by two guys, Andrew Verazdi and Ben Little. So Andrew and Ben were previously part of um, Singleton's STW that now became WPP, which was run by a guy named John Singleton, which hmm. is quite a famous name in Australian marketing, probably one of the most famous. So those guys spun out of Banjo, as a lot of people in the industry do. They, there's low barriers to entry in the communications industry. So people who you know, think there's a better way to do things, they spin out of the bigger agencies and they start their own. You know, Banjo is a fantastic creative agency and, and we went and acquired that business in the last six months because we truly believe that, yeah, marketing is still built on a great idea. You know, the, the, a great idea changes brands. It changes the way brands, governments, any organisation communicates through run, one great concept and, and that's what Banjo are um, as good as anyone or better than anyone at, at producing is that one great idea and executing that across a range of channels. So does it mean that when you, you sort of nail Banjo that you also nail down some of the, the, the talent that comes up with these great ideas? Because that leaves you vulnerable if you don't have those great talents lined up. That's right. And the, the good thing about the Australian communications industry, Peter, is there's incredible talent here. Um, you know, there's incredible minds in the Australian communications marketing advisory landscape. Um, you know, and our job is to convince them to, to come with us and, and what we're trying to build uh, here is a, is a reasonably unique offering that um, that they want to be part of us and not one of the bigger networks or one of the smaller independents. And, and Banjo certainly um, filled to the brim with that sort of talent. Jack, coming back to the future or the changing media landscape, you mentioned before that People just don't go home these days and watch three or four hours of commercial TV. In fact, I know some kids these days who don't even know what commercial TV is. 
uh, let alone watch it. But look, seriously, um, it, in terms of thinking about free-to-air TV, is that industry going to be around in 10 or 15 years' time? Look, I think, Paul, and it's a great question. I mean, if you look at the rapid fragmentation of the media landscape in the past 15 years, I mean, Facebook didn't exist 15 years ago and, and Google had only just started. And when you look at, you know, you know they, they call 15 years a generation. When you look at how our consumption habits have changed, and the important thing about this revolution, it has been driven by the consumer. Yeah, we used to be used to be as far as an advertising perspective goes, used to be able to nail down consumers by their age. Is that fourteen to eighteen year olds you know, watched, consumed very similar things. Eighteen to thirty five year olds the same. Thirty five to fifty year olds, fifty to sixty five, sixty five plus. But instead of our age groups now, we're splintered into thousands of tribes. You know, and you you have your own consumption habits. You know, what, what, where you get your information, where you get your media, what you read, what you watch, and you know, there are lots of tribes. But instead of having different age groups, there's thousands of different tribes. So, TV, print, magazines, all all those traditional forms of media are still relevant, but they're just not the only game in town anymore. Um, and with so many more options, the advertising dollar has to go so much further, and that's why you see these sort of traditional um, powerhouses of media sort of struggling a little bit. Jack, I was told by an earlier guru of the industry, Simon Reynolds with two eyes, that, and this is a long time ago when Simon was at the top of his advertising game in those days, he said it's always a good idea if you are going to you know, market your product Try radio, but don't do it when you're doing TV and newspapers. Do radio and see how it goes and then do TV and see how it goes and do um, newspapers and see how it goes. So you actually can see which one really works. But there's so many things now, it'd be very hard just to isolate your, your advertising. Does that old advice still work in the new setting? I just think that's... Uh, uh, test and learn approach, I think, in today's day and age, as you say, but it's just too expensive. Um, there's too many channels to test and learn. In the old days when it was, you can turn up and down the outdoor media, it was in the billboards, you can turn up and down the radio, you can turn up and down the TV. Mm. Now you've got to really pick your mark in a, in a cluttered landscape. You've got to pick your mark in terms of what, um, what mediums, what channels your consumer groups um, investing uh, yeah. consuming. But I think importantly, we've become so much more savvy at advertising. We know when we're being advertised to and we don't like it. And that's where um, the ability to have good creative, great ideas that cut through the clutter um, and talk to your customer base about who they are. And I, I think it's more about a conversation. It's about brands talking at consumers less and talking with consumers more, having a conversation with them about their needs and wants as opposed to flashing their message in front of their face as many times as possible. Well, Jack, it's a very interesting um, approach. Uh, I think you, you explain a lot to us. What's the future of Bastion Collective? Well, thanks for asking, Peter, because it's what I spend my days and nights thinking about. I, instead, think, when you're playing yeah, football, <laughs> instead of playing football, yeah, Port Adelaide. <laughs> I should t t say, this is not the same Jack Watts. <laughs> Yeah, there is a namesake of mine that's not doing me any my brand any um, any favours at the moment out yeah. there. Um, but no, I'm not the. <laughs> um, so, Peter, our future. I mean, we're the biggest independent 
um, communications agency in the country. So we've got 100 staff in Sydney, 100 staff in Melbourne, and we're having a crack overseas in LA and Shanghai as well. And, and you know, you talk about that, those names like John Singleton and Harold Mitchell and Mojo and Campaign Palace. And th- there was a time not that long ago where, where great Australian communications agencies existed and they changed things. They changed the way... They put brands on the map in Australia. They got governments elected, you know, Singleton got Hawke elected second time around. And yeah, those, all those big businesses have sold and they now form the big agency groups in the country. You know, Singleton became WPP, Mojo became publicist. And the future of Bastion Collective, I truly believe, is to create that great Australian agency again. Um, you know, that really stands for something in this industry. And, and I think importantly leads the ideas economy in this country and I'm, I'm very passionate about the future of this country and i think if we're going to have any future it's going to be well we're going to run out of stuff to pull out of the ground mm. you know the resources this country are built on are necessarily finite and so if we're going to have any future it's about the quality of our ideas and, and that's where i think the opportunity for our businesses is to become the great australian agency that that leads the ideas economy and ultimately We've got to grow our clients' businesses. That's what they hire us to do. It's a great vision, Jack. Thanks for joining us on the Switzer program. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay, Paul, that was Jack Watts, of course, as, as everyone heard. Uh, we, I have to finish off with a quick question. Uh, this one comes from uh, Michelle, uh, and she says, Hi, Paul, do you have anything on participating in the Caltex buyback? Yeah, look, this is uh, an off-market buyback, and that's where the company buys back shares from shareholders directly, and it does it largely, Peter, as a way of distributing franking credits. We've uh, had lots of questions about franking credits, Mm. and it's very topical because of potentially the change in government. So generally, off-market share buybacks work really well for taxpayers that are paying tax at a very low rate and aren't good at transactions for taxpayers paying tax at high marginal tax rates. So if Michelle has a super fund, which might be paying tax at 0%, or if she is a low-rate taxpayer, generally an off-market buyback will make good sense, and I'd encourage her to look at it very closely. And, of course, if she's selling shares into a buyback, the question she then needs to ask herself is, well, what do I do with the money? Do I go back and buy those shares, same shares back again on market, or do I invest in something else? So, look, without uh, sort of going into the mathematics, um, they're good for they're great transactions for some shareholders mm. and not good for others. And high I think, tax rate people and probably not. Yeah, high tax rate people, people paying tax, marginal tax rates of forty seven percent, thirty seven percent, don't even worry about it. Just mm. throw the offer in the document offer document in the bin. But low rate taxpayers, people in a self managed super farm with in pension phase paying tax at that fantastic tax rate of zero percent love that right uh, off-market share buybacks such as caltex are offering are generally pretty good transactions from a taxation point of view okay paul that's the show for today thanks for joining us everybody we'll talk to you next week